Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Hello, this is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And we're talking to you once again from our on-the-road recording studio (laughs) in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I believe we made last month's podcast, maybe. Really? Um, I don't think so. But Nevada is not on our minds. Um, As you know, we have delayed ourselves from our usual beginning of the month (laughs) podcast. Although you did travel with the portable studio, we just didn't have a minute to talk to you because... Because we were so busy on our tour of Patagonia. And we are still kind of recovering because it is very early in the morning. And we never, ever get up before sunrise. But today, because we are on jet lag schedule, we got up before sunrise. And what are we doing before sunrise? Talking to the RV Navigator listeners. And we're hoping that this podcast makes at least as much sense as our New Year's Eve podcast where we were already oh, even though we're not drinking. champagne because we don't feel quite with it. Yeah. I slept all the way till 1 a.m. and um, here I am. So we need to talk to you about Patagonia. Yes. One of the things I think that's surprising as we talk about uh, time shifting and uh, jet lag is, is that uh, it would seem like there would be very little time difference between us and South America. But if you get out of globe... Yeah. <laughs> look at it, you will see that South America is not due south of us. No. It's quite a bit to the east it's of us. It's not like going to Mexico, where you don't really have much of a time change. From Chicago. From Chicago. If you go to South America, most of South America is two time zones east of the eastern east time zone. So when you started in Las Vegas, as we did this time, we had five time zones to overcome. Yes. And the other huge disadvantage in my mind of going to South America is it would seem that every flight that you want to take to most anywhere in South America makes the trip in the middle of the night, both coming and going. Yes, so we have flown all night uh, from Buenos Aires. It was almost a 10-hour flight back to DFW. Dallas. Uh And then another three hours to Las Vegas. So we have uh, spent a fair amount of time on the road. And this trip, I think, brings home to me why we don't do more suitcase trips. (laughs) Why Why we really like traveling in our RV. Quite frankly, we are exhausted. Um, (laughs) Some of the days we did more physical activity than we're used to doing, but primarily it was the pace. When you travel so far away, the tour company tries very hard to help you to see as much as you can while you're there and take advantage of every minute that you're in, wherever it is you are, and it's just go, 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 go. And now that we are old, we like to travel at a much slower pace and linger in an area and really get to know it, and that just wasn't possible. Well, plus the packing and unpacking of your suitcase. We had five flights, internal flights on the trip, and that uh, takes its toll going to the airport or messing around and sitting and waiting. And as she said, this was a physical trip. Uh, Patagonia is noted for its outdoor activities, and if you're looking for hiking and exciting adventures, uh, mountain climbing or cliff climbing or whatever you do, kayaking, kayaking, all those sorts of things, you can certainly do it in Patagonia because it is world famous for being remote and exhilarating. 
Now, for those of you who haven't gotten your globes out yet to see where <laughs> South America is, I might say that Patagonia is the most southern part of South America. And part of it is in Chile and part of it is in Argentina, but that's where South America gets, gets very skinny. And that area, no matter which country you're in, has more in common with that area than it does with the more famous, more populous areas further north, like Buenos Aires and Santiago. Right. So our trip started in Santiago, Chile. Uh, it is about two-thirds of the way down South America, so you fly over most of South America to, to get to it. And, of course, Chile is a long, thin country that has mostly mountains. And, well, no, it has mountains, and in the northern part it has desert and very dry areas as well as uh, rainforest. So, so, so Chile is about a thousand miles long, and at the widest, I think they said a hundred miles. And so, if you go west, you fall in the sea, and if you go east, there are those Andes Mountains. And Chile also suffers greatly because it is on the Ring of Fire and is plagued with huge earthquakes regularly. So, while we were in Buenos Aires, we saw many beautiful historic buildings, which uh, Santiago probably had at some point in its but history, but they've all fallen down. And they have worked very hard to develop um, good construction techniques. They collaborate a lot with the Japanese, who also suffer from this problem. They have, um, in Santiago, the tallest building in South America now, which hopefully will remain standing. But that's a real problem for them. Yes, uh, but Santiago is a beautiful city, very interesting to visit. And very close to the city are all sorts of uh, outdoor recreational activities. Uh, within 50 miles, you can go hiking and camping and all sorts of things in the outdoors with beautiful lakes and reservoirs and and things which we did uh, take a day tour doing that. Most of the tour guides we encountered in Patagonia described their countries as teenagers <laughs> and in my mind South America was discovered more or less the same time that we were and has been around for more or less the same time we have and has been free of European colonization as long as we have more or less but that characterization is absolutely correct. Um, perhaps because of all the bad political leadership that they have had over the years. Um, every country in South America has suffered from dictatorship. They just aren't as far along in developing things. And certainly in the national parks, uh, we were constantly making comparisons in our minds between the parks we've been enjoying out west this winter and what we were seeing there. And they are just not as developed as our parks are. Uh, the hiking trails are not as user-friendly as many of ours are. Uh, usually we had to pack in a picnic lunch from the hotel because there would be nowhere to buy food. In other words, it's remote. It's remote and undeveloped. Yes, and that, that's why people go. I mean, that's the, that's the whole exciting part about it is, is that it is like the United States was 100 years ago, probably, and that makes it uh, an interesting place to visit because it is uh, so pristine. So our trip started in Santiago, and we had <laughs> an interesting flight on the new 787 Dreamliner. To Easter Island. To Easter Island, right. Which has nothing to do with Patagonia at all, No, but, but it, it belongs to Chile. But, right, and you have to fly from Santiago to get to Easter Island. Uh, it's a, a hell of a long flight. 
And even though we flew for six hours, we found out that Chile is indeed the closest place to Easter Island. What a remote speck in the middle of the Pacific. So it's an island 2,200 miles off the coast of South America. And how the original people ever stumbled upon it and made a go of it is, is a miracle. So when they say that the single gas station that is on Easter Island, the next fuel stop is 2,500 miles away. They aren't kidding. (laughs) The next gas station. I mean, we see out here, you know, no services for the next 60 or 70 miles, but there it's no services for the next 28 or 2,500 miles. An amazing place. Yes. And why do you go to Easter Island? Because of the Moai. Uh, the Poly- they think Polynesian people who who finally settled there and made a go of it um, brought a tradition of making religious statues um, on a more human scale with them. And as their culture flourished and they had uh, a very comfortable lifestyle, they turned more into the religious and artistic expression. And the upper class convinced the lower class that if they built these giant stone statues more or less in the image of whoever was paying for it, that more wealth and prosperity would come their way. And so for about 600 years, they made these moai out of the black volcano. Moai are these... They're human figures. Right. But they're out of stone and they don't know how they were made. And we went to the quarry where many of them were made, which is miles from where some of them ended up. So how they moved them is another issue that scholars continue to speculate on. And we were given theories and explanations that I don't think they can say with certainty. So it's an amazing place (laughs) to be there in this jungly area and see these huge black statues looming up out of the ground. Um, It's mind-boggling. Unlike the rest of our trip, this one was uh, very warm, very humid, very South Pacific feeling, and because the next island away was Fiji, which was 4,000 miles away, uh, it was uh, very... Oh, Tahiti, sir. Well, in Fiji, too, someplace else. That's where the other flight went, was Tahiti. Oh, that's right. So we have this uh, island that's sitting out in the middle of nowhere, and it's amazing that it's even populated by people who essentially went on rafts and and navigated through the ocean all that way because they didn't come from South America. They don't think. They don't think, right. They're doing DNA tests now, and they seem to be more related to Polynesian people than anybody else. Although over the years, uh, South American people came over there too because they've DNA tested things like the potatoes that they grow there, and those clearly came from South America. So there must have been an amazing amount of raft traffic back and forth across the Pacific back in the day. I think they were pretty isolated. And of course, why they're associated with Chile, nobody could quite tell us, outside of the fact that it's just the closest country that would provide them with protection. Unlike the Falcon Islands, which aren't part of Britain, on the other side of the continent. Anyway, is it an interesting place to visit? Very cool. I loved it. Um, I would say that it probably is not worth a gazillion dollars to get there and back. <laughs> I love it. six hours each way to get there to see a bunch of statues. It was an amazing place. And clearly, <laughs> there are a lot of people who feel as I do because the tourism industry is flourishing there. We saw international travelers from any country you can think of there. Um, and there were great tour guides who were very well trained yes. with all the theories and possibilities between how how those islands got to be populated and the Moai were built there. Um, it was a real learning experience. Yeah, and you go there just for that because 
the there are palm trees and it's nice and warm, but basically there are no beaches. One would, beach, one we, nice would, beach. That would be really uh, worth going to. So it's not that kind of a vacation destination. And I think we took away a lesson, an interesting lesson, which I hadn't anticipated. And that is that in the history of Easter Island, that it was first populated and then it was essentially raped of its resources because the people that were there used the trees for fire and they used the trees for building boats and and they used all the natural resources because there was nothing coming in. They had to be totally self-sufficient and they had to grow their own crops and the island, because it's so remote, had no alternative because there was no transportation. The They flourished. It was a very robust population for how many years? 600 years, I think. 600 years or something like that. So everybody was happy. Things were growing. And then due to... They overjetted. They overjetted. The population got too high. They cut down too many trees, Trees. so it was hard to cook. They couldn't couldn't make the boats boats anymore to go out and fish. Which is a problem. I, I hadn't even thought about that. You need wood in order to build boats to go out and go fishing. And when the wood runs out because you have not done conservation, then what happens? You no longer have the boats to go out fishing, and then what happens? So we kind of ended up seeing this island as a metaphor for planet Earth, yes. where we are also flourishing at the moment, but perhaps overjetting in terms of consuming. And there's no chance for rebuilding it because you are out in the middle of nowhere. When and it's gone, it's gone. The Earth is in the middle of nowhere. And now the population is a third of what it was. Uh, or let's say it was cut down to a third of what it was as a result. But modern day, of course, it's supplied by... Planes. By planes. And an occasional ship. Right. So today that's not an issue, although it's expensive. But ooh, when you think about the Earth in the same perspective, that uh, we could be using up all the resources, and then what do we do? And if you, like me, occasionally have been daydreaming about going to Easter Island on a cruise ship, having been there in this way, I would say cruising there is not the best strategy. Again, because it's so far away, it takes you a week of cruising to get there, (laughs) and there is no harbor that's big enough for a cruise ship to dock, so there are occasions when the cruise ship comes there and says, yep, there it is, but the wind is too windy, the waves are too high, and they don't even disembark the passengers, which would be very disappointing. Very. So if you're and one day, I'm not sure, is really enough, enough to do. So if you're interested in Easter Island, do it right. Start <laughs> in Chile. Get that big plane ticket and go six hours each direction. So from there, we went back to Buenos Aires, and which is in Argentina, the neighboring country. We learned a lot about the Chilean-Argentinian relationship, which we won't go into here, but uh, it has a long history of almost going to war and being friends and Yeah, I kind of expected their border to be kind of like our border with Canada, more or less friendly. And it probably is today, but for most of the time, not all that friendly. Not all that happy. And they consider themselves to be two entirely different cultures and with different histories and different value systems. So although we kind of, and that's one of the best things about travel is, you know, when you go and you experience these things and actually talk to the guides and the people in the country. Get the tricky details. Right. For instance... Argentina is experiencing tremendous inflation. Has been. Has been. I mean, like in the order of 30% a year. And has, for a number of years, just not been able to get 
control of its currency. So, for example, when you walk down the street of Buenos Aires, there are always people lurking in a somewhat ominous way, although it really isn't, um, saying cambio, cambio, because they want to change their Argentine pesos, pesos for, for your American dollars, because <laughs> the dollar is a stable currency and theirs is inflating um, in a crazy manner and has been for years. It's one of the only places that we've ever been, I would say, where dollars were more accepted than the local, local currency. currency. I'm sure this happens in other parts of the world, but it certainly surprised us. Our basic philosophy is that when we come to a country, we, we try to spend its currency. We make the effort to go to an ATM or something and get local currency, which we did do. But we found that as we tried to spend it, that not only did every place, virtually every place, take dollars, but they actually wanted them. As a matter of fact, one of our hotels... Charged us a 17%... percent tax if we used local money. So we, it, it, they, they said, well, here's your bill, and if you want to pay in pesos, we have to add 19% <laughs> on there. And I said, well, I don't know if I have enough dollars. And they said, oh, no problem, you can charge it. And, you know, most of the time you pay a fee to, charge. to use your, your charge card, but here they were charging in dollars, so they were getting dollars, and they preferred that to the peso. Whoa. Mind-boggling. And you think about, what would you do? If the inflation in the United States was 30% a year or and, more. And another very traumatic Ooh. experience, early in the 2000s, um, all the banks ran out of money. And so if right. you had savings in your bank, as we are wont to do and are encouraged to do, uh, one fine day, uh, the banks all closed. There was no money left. Nobody got any money back. Ever. and And... What a traumatic experience, no matter what so, your stage in life. So the Argentinian people are very wary of, of the <laughs> financial system, and they keep their money in dollars. You walk down the, the shopping mall street, and you'd be approached Numerous five times. times in a block about somebody wanting to give you pesos for your hard American currency. As she said, it wasn't aggressive, but it was just kind of Everywhere. a shock. Because we go to Chile. Which appears to be a country similar. that lives more within its means, uh -huh. I would say. Um, and that and didn't happen at all. Country. No, yeah. didn't happen at all. And they were happy to accept their own pesos as uh, currency rather than dollars. Although they took dollars too, but uh, they didn't give you a, a benefit for using dollars. And another huge difference between the two countries is that in Argentina you get free education, K uh, through university. Yes. You get free health care. They give huge subsidies for utilities, utilities, electricity, gas, water. And there's no free lunch in this world. If you want to have those things for free, which is a very commendable goal, Indeed. you have to pay for it somehow, some way. So in Chile there was much less of the free lunch um, approach to life and their economy was more stable. One of our guides showed us her electric bill. It was $5 for two months? I know. Wow. And that included water. And that was in Patagonia where the climate is cold and she runs her and they, heater all the time. And they said, well, because it's so cheap, people just kind of waste waste, waste energy, which is really crazy. And they were, they were shocked because the government was trying to rein this in and they had imposed a 400% increase in the electric rates. Well, 400% means it goes up to $20, $20 every two months. Yeah, so anyway, $40 a month. And so for us, of course, that's uh, 
<laughs> nominal. <laughs> We're wondering how much it's going to cost us for one month to uh, pay the electric bill here in the Las Vegas campground. The campground, yeah. <laughs> It'll probably be at least $40 and probably a good deal more. So that was an interesting experience, uh, the differences between the two countries. But the interesting part was then flying to Ushuaia. The southernmost city in the world. Argentina. In Argentina. Right. And many of the Antarctic expeditions leave from that city. That's one of its main economic engines, I would say. It has been also heavily subsidized by the Argentinian government because right. they felt that it would be important to have enough people living down there that it would be a, a real city. And it is very remote. and So they, they bribe people to go down can, there with huge salaries. You can drive there, but it would it's like 2,000 miles and you have to drive through Chile and it's, it's a mess to drive down there. So it is a very isolated city, but kind of an interesting city. And with beautiful mountains around it and there was a national park just right outside of town where we did a little hiking. And, of course, everybody down there was anticipating winter. Because it's the other side of the world. So it's nice to be back here where it's spring because the trees were turning color and people were talking about they're expecting snow in the next few weeks and it was uh, getting colder. And To come back here and find the beautiful weather in Las Vegas. I didn't realize that Las Vegas had nice, cool temperatures all the way through April. Uh, I always think of Las Vegas as being hot, 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 hot. hot, But, boy, we come back here and it's like beautiful blue skies and 80 degrees. That was very pleasant because most of our trip was spent in the cold. And they kept uh, emphasizing to us layers, layers, layers because it could be cold and then it could be windy and then it could be raining and then it could be snowing. All of these things within a single day. In this time of climate change, when we worry so much about all the glaciers melting and the rising of the sea, uh, the ice field that's that's called the Southern Andes Ice Field that uh, forms many of the glaciers down there seems to be holding its own. Uh And it's in a very unique position because the latitude there is more or less like Vancouver, not that far north. Uh, But there seems to be an area in the Pacific that regularly generates these heavily moisture-laden winds that go east and hit the Andes, and as they try to rise over the Andes, it snows. So the ice field gets snow 330 days a year. And so even though the snow melts and we saw lots of glaciers calving and the silty, milky water that you see when a glacier is melting, the glaciers are constantly being replenished by this moisture-laden wind. So it's kind of a stable system, Uh at least at the moment. And this one ice field, I think they said, generated over 100 glaciers coming off of it, and that was awesome. So we visited Ushuaia in order to board our cruise ship. Uh, This is a very small ship called the Australis, and it was a four-day trip through areas of Patagonia that are inaccessible any other way. Through the Beagle Channel. Through the Beagle Channel. As she mentioned, uh, you can go to Antarctica. (laughs) And very interesting, we have contemplated going to Antarctica many times. Certainly the price for going there is off-putting. Typically cruises cost $25,000. 
per person? Is that well, you could plan on at least $1,000 a day yeah. per per. Yeah. To, and that's just the cruise itself. Problem is they're so iffy. I think we, we, I don't know, that's a lot of money. What do you get to see? Maybe nothing. Maybe you don't even get to go at all. Yeah, our guide has are canceled. Right? The, the company that we travel with, uh, the guide had been to Antarctica leading tours uh, many times. And he had some stories which were unbelievable. And just in talking to other travelers who have tried to go to Antarctica, it is a very trying experience. And you may never get there. And even on this trip, uh, the weather was, to me, not all that nice, even though the tour leader kept telling us about how lucky we were because we got to actually see the glaciers and see the mountaintops through the gray, misty skies. To spend all that money and go down there and not be able to see anything and then endure privation or seasickness or danger. Yeah, because there was another group of people on our tour that had just come from Antarctica and their ship had propulsion problems and they were stuck at sea and they got seasick terribly. Although they they spoke highly of it, I and they had some nice penguin and pictures. nice penguin pictures because they went to South Georgia Island and the Falklands on their trip. So if you go to Antarctica, you go to several other places, and you'd want to spend at least two weeks on the on board the ship. And they would go to places that I don't know. You, you, you go to see ice. You go to see glaciers. Mm-hmm. No, not glaciers really. You go to see just icebergs and a few animals. Uh, so I think we have more or less, and the weather being so iffy. So we're leaning toward no. Yes, we're leaning towards no. Because one of the stories that our guide had to tol- had told us about was the fact that uh, the, the tour passengers uh, had gathered in Ushuaia, and they were about to board the ship, and the ship said, eh, we're canceling this cruise. And they said, why? Well, because uh, the storm forecast for the next two weeks is terrible, terrible. and we're not going to take the ship out. And he said, here I am with, you know, all 25 people. people. Who paid all the money to fly down there. <laughs> and they said, well, that's the way it goes. And, and you do want to be safe. Of course, yeah. You don't want to go out, And you don't want to go out there and just experience storm, that's for sure. I mean, I can understand why they did it. But on the other hand. How disappointing. These people had nothing to do, so they went home. Yeah. Now, with that said, we were very surprised that you can go down to Ushuaia. If you're a speculator, you can go down to Ushuaia and you can go standby and save 50% on the the rate. leftover births. And apparently, uh, almost always, you can get out in the next few days if you're not uh, really too too interested in the specific itinerary. For instance, do you want to go to South Georgia Island that has the... King penguins. Emperor penguins. Yeah. Emperor penguins, sorry. And, you know, there are various things that, that itineraries do that uh, some itineraries don't do. So you, you'd you have to be flexible. But if you really want to go, that may be the way to, to do it. And then, you know, book your airfare and things uh, on the spot. I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I do that. We're more planful than that, I think. But I think we have scratched Antarctica off of our list for the time being. Because it, it's taxing. And frankly, I don't like the cold weather that no, much. No. I don't like... I mean, we were out there in layers, 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 blah, blah, blah. We had... I was rain always... Rain pants, wore, rain gloves, waterproof boots. Camera, you know, water protection gear. And you just say, oh... Am I having fun? <laughs> <laughs> so, we left on the cruise. Uh, very nice little ship. Uh, less than 200 passengers. 
and it was only half full. So you could have gotten on a standby. And it didn't go to Antarctica, but it went up the coast of Patagonia, uh, places that just were not, uh, well, they call it the fjord zone, and you can't get there by any other way besides ship and not even flying. So the cruise took us to the first stop, which was kind of a thrill because it was Cape Horn. And Cape Horn is one of those places, the furthest place furthest land areas south before you get to antarctica and it's further south than any place in africa or, or new zealand, zealand or, or australia or any place like that so it's really really very far south and once again uh they made us feel very lucky because we were actually able to land and to walk up to the lighthouse and see the things that and there were was there. some blue sky and there was some blue sky and it was actually oh my pictures turned out really nice but they said only 50% of the time are they able to land. So the typical pattern of this cruise was that in the morning and in the afternoon, they would plan some sort of Zodiac activity. Yes, which meant you were, might get wet. So you had to get on the Zodiac before you actually got... Right, before you got to the destination, <laughs> your your final destination. This was our first time really doing Zodiacs, I think. And they obviously had been doing this a long time and had it very well organized. But you had to wear a life jacket every... Uh, trip in and out from the shore so that in terms of keeping your camera and stuff organized keeping yourself organized this was kind of a pain in the neck and you took the potential of getting wet there were several times when waves came over the back of the transom or you know you're going into shore and the waves uh, come over the bow and you get wet just from the spray and stuff so that was a hazard and then when you got on shore what do you do with your life preserver wear it but they took us on some very nice hikes we hiked uh, four to six miles a day which was very interesting uh, we hiked up to glaciers we hiked uh, th- through to look at uh, waterfalls and forests and forests and animals and mostly bird life one of the things we were quite surprised with is the fact that there <laughs> although people said it was very very uh, animal oriented there were not many animals and we have to make the comparison here to Alaska which we have a uh, tour fairly extensively and uh, we obviously spent a lot more time but in terms of big mammals and stuff alaska has it much better and i think that the the views are just as good yeah or better yeah i would say everybody was very enthusiastic about patagonia and the scenery that we saw but i have to say that they probably haven't been to the... Alaska the way we have. Yeah. And we didn't get a chance to walk on a glacier. We got to walk... Well, we never really touched the the glaciers at no. all because it was, I guess, too dangerous. Uh, we got to go to the, see the face of them. We would take the Zodiacs up and, you know, get within a half mile of the face of the glacier, watch for calving and that sort of stuff. But... Which was tr- cool. Which was cool. But in McCarthy, in Alaska, Alaska we, we actually walked, on the, walked on the glacier, took a nice hike on the glacier. So... My recommendation would be that if you're going to Alaska... If you want to be cold and rainy, go to Alaska. It's a lot closer. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't have to fly overnight. (laughs) See your own country first. Uh, And and that, of course, comes uh, from first-hand experience. And that's why 
you read about these places, you see pictures of it, but of course the pictures are always taken with, on blue sky days. The one day it wasn't snowing. Exactly. So uh, having first-hand experience is a, a critical factor. You don't know and if you don't go. And that's why we do these trips, these trips, and we can hardly recommend it for you also. So from the cruise, we did several stops, and as she said, the weather the weather was actually very nice. So they said. Well, yes, but it was, and there were several times when I took off all my layers. <gasps> No, I wasn't naked, but I stripped down to my pants and shirt and carried the stuff in my backpack, which was a pain in the neck. Overall, it wasn't as cold as I expected. No. And when you're out hiking and you work up ahead of steam, you really... And our guide in his wrap-up of our trip said we were extremely lucky. As a matter of fact, Weather-wise. there were things that he does this trip once a month, spends three weeks out of every month doing this trip, and had done this. You can only do this between November seven and trips this season. November and April, and he said there were things that we saw that he hadn't seen all since all season. So uh, I guess going in the fall is a pretty good idea. He said his first trip... <laughs> it's every, snow every day. Every day. Every day. <laughs> and when they went to Ushuaia <laughs> to fly back out of Ushuaia, they were snowed out, and then the group had to spend the entire night at the airport sleeping on the floor. Can you imagine that, having six feet of snow... And having to spend the night at the airport because they couldn't get to their hotel. Ah! Well, it gives you some nice stories to talk about when you get home, that's for sure. Are we done talking about Patagonia? No. The ship and then we some bus, bus touring. Trips. And that's uh, one of the reasons why we travel with uh, Oat is because they give us a, <laughs> enough room in the buses and stuff. Although this trip, because it had a small ship involved we had 24 people on our trip too many too many right we like the 16 but we still had a decent uh, 45 passenger bus so we could spread uh, out spread out right and so we went to chile some more and we went to toro stepania world famous national park uh where we saw more glaciers and very unique mountain formations and then we went to the last place that we visited was yeah, Los Glaciares National Park. Which had a fabulous glacier. That was probably the most scenic of the glaciers that we saw. It was like seeing the World Trade Center of glaciers. It was just I would say that. so and, big. Right, world class for sure. And this was a park where they actually had decent infrastructure and had built a three-mile boardwalk so you could walk alongside <laughs> this huge glacier and watch it calve and get... Every angle of it documented with your camera. It right. was spectacular. Yes, and that was, uh, I would say, one of the highlights of the trip. The, it was a huge glacier with a huge ice field behind it. And the town that is near there for tourists who are planning <laughs> to visit the glacier, El Calafate, was also very nice and kind of reminded me of little mountain towns we visited in Switzerland and Austria. It had that kind of vibe to it. Um, lots of nice little shops and restaurants, very tourist-friendly. Yes. Um, so, And then from there we flew back to Buenos Aires and then home. So this trip was about 22 days for us, mm-hmm. so close to three weeks. And as we said, we left our RV. This is one of the first times we've done an RV. <laughs> we took a vacation from our vacation. Well, I wouldn't call this a vacation. <laughs> I would call this hard work. <laughs> it was. <laughs> One of the first times we've gone overseas, not from our home. And it worked out very well. 
And one of the things we really want to rave about is getting to and from the airport here in Las Vegas. We've heard about Uber and Lyft, but this right. was the first time we needed to get back and forth and thought we'd give it a try. Las Vegas is especially notorious for taxi drivers that take you the long way around and charge you uh, double what the fee should be. And we thought, ooh, will the Uber come to a campground? Uh, but yeah. you downloaded the app, you pressed the button, and within five minutes, the driver was here. Well, this is uh, Uber is a pretty amazing product, and I would highly recommend it from our experience so far. We've now used it twice to go to and from the airport. We found this campground that's about eight miles from the airport, so we thought, well... You know, taxi or whatever will will get us to the airport. But Uber is almost like a friend taking you to the airport from our experience so far. Not only did I have a free ride for the first trip. Because you had a coupon. I had a coupon. New, new customer New customer coupon. coupon. But the service was excellent. And, you know, you don't have to call. And, it's, and you don't have to pay with money on the spot, which is also very nice. So you use the app. And you just say it knows where you are because it's, <laughs> which is very cool. GPS right. and your phone. And so you just say, "I want to go to the McCarran Airport," and you press the button. And I was surprised at how responsive it was. That okay, the the driver was three minutes away, and then you watch him on the map drive up to closer, your place. And the guy, uh, there are two entrances to this campground, and so I could see him coming down the road. So I waved at him. So he turned into the right. And you know, it's it, he's got his own car. So it's not like a taxi, and you get in, and there's no uh, panel between you and the driver. Because and he collaborated with us on the best route to take. Exactly. Which so, a taxi driver would never do. So it was almost like, as I say, having a friend. You just throw your stuff in the trunk, and uh, they drive you to the airport. And pretty much the same thing on the way home, too. We had a, a, a woman driver. We didn't know exactly where to go at the airport because they don't allow them to go where the taxis are. You can imagine there are a lot of bad feelings there. Yeah, the taxi drivers must be up in arms. But once again, we got our luggage. I pushed the button and said, uh, we want a, an Uber ride. And it said, drivers, th- well, in this case, five minutes away, and uh, go to the blah, blah, blah place at the airport. And we did, and there, there she, she was. was. And the nice thing, too, is, is that you can push the button and you can text your driver or call them, I guess. I don't know. I didn't even notice that. Anyway, there's a way to communicate with your driver in case it's you're not quite uh, connected. And then paying is just as really... It's automatic. It's built in. The thing tells you in advance how much it's going to cost, and you pay. You've entered your credit card, so it just is automatically charged the credit card. You put on a tip if you want to, and voila, it's done. And you, so you get out of the out of the cab. You take your stuff out, out of the hmm, out of the car, and you just uh, walk away. We're fans. We're fans. So uh, Uber has worked out very nice. <laughs> Speaking of cars, uh, another interesting thing for our own car that we purchased this month is an automatic. And Martha is loving the automatic. Why? I'm not driving. You're driving. <laughs> I think insurance companies use this gizmo. If you volunteer, they keep tabs on how well you drive, and uh-huh. then they adjust your rates accordingly. So um, Ken gets graded every day by this little app that says if he's been speeding or says if he's been doing hard stops. Uh-huh. The first time he used it, he was quite unhappy with his grade. 
because I was in the 25th percentile or something. So since then, he's been driving like a grandma, and he's gotten an A. <laughs> so let's let's step back here. Um, I heard a, a review of the automatic, and if you go to automatic.com, you can see this device. It's a, a it's a seventy dollar device that plugs into the port on your car. Every car has a diagnostic port, and this device plugs into that diagnostic port, and it does the data calculations uh, for your driving. And it's very interesting because it gives you all sorts of statistics about your car's performance. Well, I don't even want to say your car's performance. Your performance. <laughs> because it, it downgrades you for like going over 70 miles an hour because it knows that the, the gas mileage goes down and it jackrabbit starts. Not even jackrabbit. I haven't been doing jack... I don't do jackrabbit starts, but sometimes you have to accelerate quickly to get into Or a, stop suddenly. Or stop suddenly, right. And you get downgraded for uh, doing that type of thing. Now, if you have... A, and it also knows your location because... <laughs> We were we were at the uh, a balloon festival. And we kind of lost our car. Oh, that's right. That was interesting because I hadn't really thought about this, but it actually knows your location, and so it helped us find our car in the in parking the dark because it was on the other side of a hill that we didn't realize that we'd walk. When we around. parked, there were hardly any people there, but when we left, it was full, so yes. we couldn't quite orient ourselves. So one of the other things is, is is that it'll help you locate your car in case you lose it, and it does all sorts of uh, calculations and statistics as well as diagnostics. So if a red light comes on on your dashboard, it tells you what that red light means. And all of this is basically free once you bought the hardware. So you buy this gizmo and then download the app, and <laughs> if you do something wrong, it beeps at you. Has this friendly little? Mm, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. <laughs> so if you're and, and by the way, uh, if you have children, you can put this thing in and it will monitor uh, their driving. Monitor their driving, not only their driving, but their if you you can set up zones so that they can't go more than twenty miles from home or whatever you want to set it up as. It would turn off the engine. No. But it will alert. It will send you a text message. You will send know mom it. and dad. You will know that they did. That they no. It's not going to shut off the car. But that's uh, a pretty cool device. And as I say, one time expense, so not really uh, any problem there. So other RV things. We try to think about RVing while we're while we're on our on the road, but it's it's kind of tough. But we have thought about some things. And luckily, you guys have kept in touch with emails, so I want to respond to oh, one. Yes. Which says, I finally gave in to my husband's plans for me to look at RVs. I found one that I like. My husband likes them all. His dream is for us to be full-time RV people. How does this work for someone who likes her clothes, her shoes, her handbags, <laughs> with such little space? Do you just adopt a new philosophy, less is more? I would like to hear this topic addressed. What is the dress style overall in RV parks? Well, Kathleen, I would say that it would be very easy to spend your life in jeans and a T-shirt in this very lifestyle. Um, I, too, uh, share your philosophy that I like to have shoes and things that match each other. 
but there just isn't room for that, and no one cares. And but you do have a fair amount of shoes along. And on those occasions when you go out to a nice restaurant or to a show, uh, you can have a few nice things along and dress up, but the general lifestyle does it's not require casual. that. Um, in, in this climate, I wear flip-flops and cut-off shorts and a T-shirt most of the time, and I fit right in with everybody else who's here. And I think you want to think about layers, and you want to think about the size of the RV. Because we have the capability in our basement, we can put almost anything we need. And as you know, we brought along our suitcases for a trip that we had that we planned for, but didn't have the clothes in the RV to accommodate. But we have a large closet, I would say. But it's probably a. Quarter. And how many pairs of shoes do you have? It's probably a quarter. Thirty. No, it's probably a quarter. Many, wait, 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 wait. How many pairs of shoes do you have? You, she has a shoe rack that goes all the way around, around the, the bed. bed. But that doesn't hold very many shoes. No, How I probably have a quarter to a third here of what I have at home. Really? Yeah. Wow. And it also depends um, what kind of climate that you are in. Yes. Um, and if you do any specialized things like my waterproof hiking boots are uh-huh. now part of my RV collection. Right. Um, but generally, we try to chase warm, nice weather, so I don't need a lot of sweatery, parky kind of stuff or a lot of warm shoes because usually we're in temperate climates. Right. That's our but, goal. But Buying an RV that has the kind of space that you need is really the key. Uh, understanding that you can easily downsize most of your clothes uh, to a reasonable number, but you've got to th- look at the space. And to me, one of the problems is is that the stuff is not as easily available as, as it is at home. You forget what you have because you can't see it. Now, we have two different philosophies of clothing. <laughs> And yours is? Well, I it, when we get home, well, this wouldn't pertain if she's a full-timer, but when we get home, well, I not. empty out my closet and bring everything in the house. And then we'll, when we're ready for the next trip, I select the clothing that I think I will use for those destinations and that weather and that climate, and I put them back in, which is a bit of work, but I end up with the right things, and I'm not suddenly amazed oh, that I have no that shorts. Hurts. That hurts. I forgot to put any shorts in because I didn't know that there weren't any there. So your philosophy is? My philosophy is I keep a duplicate set of everything in the RV and at home. So when I'm ready to leave home, I just go out to the RV and turn on the engine and leave because everything is there. I have extra, kind of. I have extra underwear. I have everything that I need. Uh, all and, and it's like getting a whole new closet because everything you haven't seen in the last six months or whenever the last time you traveled was. So I keep it all ready to go. It's And we do the same thing with dishes. We don't bring the dishes in from the house into the RV. We leave them there. Kind of wasteful. Oh, but it's fun. It's nice to have a whole second set of stuff that you haven't seen. You go, oh, I remember that shirt. That's nice. Pants. All that sort of stuff. And I think when you live at home, you see the same people over and over again. And Uh, you kind of feel like they have already seen that outfit and you should be wearing something different. But when you're moving around like a gypsy, uh, that's much less the case. And you just get used to it. I mean, even on this Patagonia trip where, where I basically had three, three outfits shirts, for yeah. cold weather and two outfits for when we were on Easter Island, everybody that we were with was similarly yeah. limited, and it was just fine, and nobody cared. Nobody, Yeah, I didn't even notice it at all. So, so I think whatever RV you have, you'll use up the space, and you'll get used to it. It's just a matter of 
getting used to the space limitations, but it's a little bit less accessible. And certainly as you are shopping around at the floor plans, closet space is something that I would look for. And the thing that we lost in this one, you remember, I think we is complained about our coat about closet. Our yeah. coat closet. So now we have to keep our clothes, our coats, our winterish coats elsewhere, because it just doesn't work out. How about a new website? Actually, this website's been around for a while, but uh, I just heard about it uh, in an interview, and it's called MyRVDestinations.com. You know that we love RV Park Reviews because it has tons and tons of reviews. And a second site that we really like is TripAdvisor. TripAdvisor you know, has reviews for so many places all over the world. You could type in almost any city and find out what people like about that city. Uh, we did in in uh, Santiago, we did a food tour. And how did we find the food tour? By going to TripAdvisor. But uh, there are things that um, these sites don't cover because they are RV specific. And so this website MyRVDestinations.com is focused on not only having user reviews of campgrounds, but all sorts of activities that RVers do. Uh, it's kind of a new site, and obviously it, and it depends on the users and how they put in the reviews, but it works pretty much the same. RV Park Reviews, if, if a campground is not listed, you can be the first Add one it. to list Add it. And this uh, site uh, apparently does the same thing also. So this is uh, a nice idea because it's uh, more comprehensive than RV Park Reviews. RV Park Reviews has almost every campground in it, so that's a good site, but... It doesn't have any other types of activities. So if you're looking for uh, restaurants or specific uh, destination locations, it, it will help you there. So it depends on us as listeners, as users, to actually make the site work. So it's time for us to put some stuff in, and we were planning on doing that. How about the functional refrigerator liners? This is, well, to me, a new product available from fridgecoaster.com. This is cool. Um, according to the advertiser, it's absolutely the best material for your refrigerator. The fridge coaster material absorbs normal drips or spills and is so aggressive with moisture it dries completely while still in the refrigerator, leaving no room for odor or mold. It protects your fridge from drips that would otherwise stick and harden to the bottom of your bin and require scrubbing or worse, stain the bin surface. I especially have trouble when we come home at the end of a trip getting the refrigerator uh-huh. totally dry, and inevitably there's some mildew spots. That well, I and I think to. RVers as a group have a problem with refrigerators because stuff spills inside there as it goes down the road and things, little drips and stuff. And so what these are are more or less custom-designed little liners that fit on the bottom of the underneath things and fit on your shelves, and they keep not only stuff from moving around, but it also absorbs the the spills. It looked to me like this product was designed for um, at-home refrigerators, but you could easily take out a pair of scissors and cut it to fit whatever fridge you have in your RV. So last but not least... We will, uh, (laughs) as usual, we have no trouble filling up the hour. And I think we're going to end it here with some comments from other travelers that were compiled by a British company about complaints they had about their overseas experience. It looks to me like most of these were unwell-traveled British tourists (laughs) who were visiting primarily Spain. So keep that in mind. Well, in other places. Well, number one. So these are traveler complaints. Complaints, right. 
Number one, I think it should be explained in the brochure that the local convenience store does not sell proper biscuits like custard creams or ginger nuts. Biscuits, of course, being, being cookies. cookies. So the stores don't have the things you have at home. Well, duh. Number two, it's lazy of the local shopkeepers in Puerto Vallarta to close in the afternoon. <laughs> I often needed to buy things during siesta time. This should be banned. Oh, boy. Talk about ethnocentristic. Number three, on my holiday to Goa, India, I was disgusted to find almost every restaurant served curry. <laughs> You're in India. I don't like spicy food, and we don't either, but we understood why they were, they were, they were it was on the menu. We booked an excursion to a water park, but no one told us we had to bring our own bathing suits and towels. <laughs> we assumed it would be included in the price. Yeah, just what I want to do is buy, wear a retro bathing suit. A towel, maybe, but oh my. Uh, number five, the beach was too sandy. <laughs> <laughs> we had to clean everything when we returned to our room. Oh my. We found the sand was not like the sand in the brochure. Your brochure shows the sand is white, but it was more yellow. Oh my. Let's complain about some small stuff here. They should not allow topless bathing on the beach. <laughs> oh yes, they should. They should not allow. Uh, they should not allow topless bathing on the beach. It was very distracting to my husband, who, wanted, who just wanted to relax. <laughs> we won't even comment on that. No one told us there would be fish in the water. The children were scared. <laughs> and how many times did we see that where the fish come up and oh, nibble my. your toes? <laughs> Uh, uh, number nine, although the brochure said that there was a fully equipped kitchen, there was no egg slicer in the drawer. <laughs> I don't think I own an egg slicer. No. I don't have a fully equipped kitchen either. No, not in your RV. We went on holiday to Spain and had a problem with the taxi drivers. They were all Spanish. <laughs> Number 11, the roads were uneven and bumpy, so we could not read the local guidebook during the bus ride to the resort. Because of this, we were unaware of the many things that we that would have made our holiday even more fun. <laughs> <laughs> so what are they supposed to do about the <laughs> make better roads? Oh, my. It took us nine hours to fly home from Jamaica to England. It took the Americans only three hours to get home. That seems unfair. <laughs> Let's put Jamaica in the middle. Let's move Jamaica to the middle of the ocean. But <laughs> well, it already is. Oh, boy. People make some really crazy comments, don't they? Uh, I compared the size of our one-bedroom suite to our friend's three-bedroom, and ours was significantly smaller. Imagine that. <laughs> the brochure stated no hairdressers at the resort. We're trainee hairdressers, and we think they knew and made us wait longer for service. <laughs> this is the last one. There are too many Spanish people here. The receptionist spoke Spanish. The food was in Spanish. No one told us that there would be so many foreigners. <laughs> oh, 
so dear listener, there are advantages to being a traveler in that you learn that these things are common. And maybe and some people should just stay, stay home. home. <laughs> if you want, our basic philosophy is if you want it to be like home, then stay home because the, that's what travel is about. It's about learning and experiencing new and different things. And if you want to, I agree. I think everybody should speak English. There's no question about it. I have spent the last three weeks trying to... Trying to to remember the word for ice cubes in Spanish. (laughs) Halo. Yellow. Oh, yellow. So I... Well, He still doesn't remember, but now he doesn't need to because we're back in the good old U.S. of A. That's right, where we can speak maybe to some people that we know. Anyway, we're very glad to be home. Sorry that the podcast is a bit late in getting mounted, but uh, I hope you understand that uh, the travel just kind of interrupted our usual monthly schedule. And that we will be back on schedule next month. As we travel now, uh, we head to California. To the Pacific to Coast the Pacific once Ocean. again. And next month we will be uh, in the midst of hosting our friends from Australia, which we are doing in San Francisco. So to Al and Susan, who are now traveling in the United States and posting frequently on Facebook, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing you. And we hope to uh, talk to you listeners uh, at the beginning of May. Ooh. And we'll try Spring to be- is coming. Thank goodness it's not winter. And we'll try to be a little more RV-oriented again next month. Right. Until then, we will say goodbye for now and hope to see you. Oh, they actually could see us in a campground near us in the not-too-distant future. Happy travels. Bye now.